Hey, could I ask you a quick question for a podcast while you guys are playing? Could I ask you a quick question? Okay. If you could change anything about New York City to make it better for kids, what would it be? Have a ginormous robot thing that could just go everywhere and pick up trash. More parks, more like like home, homeless shelters and stuff like that. I'm doing a podcast. My name is Aaron. Tell me your name and how you would change New York City. What would you go Dolly and um, free candy that's everywhere stuck to the ground. Stuck to the ground? <laughs> would you just like eat it off the ground? No, and it's a gum ground. The ground is made of gum. <laughs> Get more buses that carry wheelchair people or people with disabilities. I really want more playgrounds. I want more pools. <laughs> well, I would make the sidewalks and bike lanes bigger because a lot of times you'll see a person biking on the sidewalk because there isn't a bike lane on that street. So um, I would add more bike lanes and make the bike lanes bigger. Hmm, that, yeah. that last kid sounds a little too good to be true. Did we have a ringer in there? I, I got to admit, that last child who was speaking was my daughter, age nine. And yes, I have brainwashed her thoroughly. She is a full recruit into the War on Cars. Hello, and welcome to the War on Cars, the podcast that wants free candy everywhere, stuck to the ground. I am Aaron Napperstack, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Sarah Goodyear and Doug Gordon. And in addition to my daughter, those thoughtful, creative, and extremely cute voices you heard at the top of the show were recorded outside of PS118, the Maurice Sendak Community School here in Brooklyn, New York. You thought I sounded cute, Doug? Thank uh, you you so did, much. you did, Aaron. You sounded adorable. Appreciate that. They really were like... Really, they had a great mixture of completely fantastical and impractical ideas, and also really real and thoughtful responses to the world they see around them. And that's what we're talking about this week. Kids, families, and cities. How can we make cities better places for kids? What does a kid-friendly city even look like? And why is this such an important question for people who are trying to win the war on cars? So as you heard, we went straight to kids themselves to find out what they think. And I, I think it's really important because a lot of times when we debate these issues, kids' voices are left out. So we talked to them, and we also spent some time on a playground with Alexandra Lang, an architecture and design critic. Alexandra writes regularly for The New Yorker and Curbed, other places like that. And she also has an awesome Twitter account, Lang Alexandra. Look her up. It's worth following. And she's the author of a new book called The Design of Childhood, How the Material World Shapes Independent Kids. That's incredibly thought-provoking. Technically, she is Dr. Alexandra Lang, but she doesn't want any of her fellow journalists to know that she has a PhD because the journalists think it's weird to have a PhD. No, they actually just, it makes them feel incredibly insecure and inferior is what it is. <laughs> so don't call her Dr. Alexandra Lang. Okay, okay. We, we will not do that. Before we talk about anything else, kids, cars, cities, we're going to talk business. I don't know if you guys know, but this is our 20th episode. Wow. Doo -doo -doo -doo. I'm impressed by Fanfare us. Fanfare music. Yeah. So we couldn't make this show without everybody's support. And in honor of this, we've got a special prize. The first 20 people who contribute via Patreon, go to thewaroncars.org and click on Donate. You will get a very special prize. You will get autographed hashtag ban car stickers from the three of us. Because who doesn't want that? Oh, wow. yeah. I mean, that's, that's a deluxe premium. 
Maybe when we make our 200th episode, we'll actually be able to afford real prizes to give yeah, away to if, people. If yes. these people will just get Keep over donating. there and donate. So hit pause, go to Patreon, subscribe to The War on Cars. Yeah, the hit pause is huge because you will we miss out. You we don't be, want you to be distracted. The yeah. first 20 people who do that after this podcast drops, you are getting special hashtag band car stickers. Oh, oh yeah. Right, or right. if you increase your pledge. 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 Yeah, that counts too. If yeah. you're already a subscriber and you jump in and you increase, boom. Free sticker. Awesome. Back to the subject at hand. Okay, so when you are out there in the trenches fighting the war on cars, one of the things you will hear from people anytime you want to take a parking spot for bike parking or put in a bike lane somewhere or a bus lane is that how can you do that? People need to drive. They need cars. Why? Because they have kids, Mm -hmm. right? We can't build that bike lane because uh, people need to drive to school which makes it unsafe to then bike to school. And this often feels unassailable. Like you can't argue with that person. Once they say, I need a car because I have kids, it's like end of argument, right? Yeah, and the problem is that when somebody says it's because I have kids, it's sacrilege to suggest that they could possibly deal with their kids in any other way than with a motor vehicle. I mean, I have kids. I have a family, a wife and children, and I am accused of being anti-family because (laughs) I suggest every now and then that people can actually do things like take their kids to school or pick up groceries without an SUV. The irony is that it's cars that are screwing up the places that kids live and are actually creating unhealthy environments for kids where they're in danger and the ice sheets are melting. I mean, all of these things that we say we want to protect our kids from, people who wouldn't even consider giving their kids non-organic applesauce don't have any problem with driving them around in a machine that could kill them or somebody else very easily. Anyway, it's it's exactly the opposite of what you should be doing for your children. So one of the things that was almost kind of surprising about Alexandra Lang's book, The Design of Childhood, was the extent to which it actually focuses a lot on cars and the way in which the car has fundamentally altered childhood. I think it's really important to have things that kids can access like right outside their front door without parental supervision. I mean that's kind of the dream of the 1950s suburbs that the kids would just come home from school, you know, change their clothes, have a snack and then run outside and play together until evening. And one of the reasons that doesn't happen anymore are are things like after school programs and organized sports everything is a supervised activity now. And that's partially a cultural change and partially a reaction to the increased dominance of the car and dominance of organized activities in kids' lives. So I think there's a connection between the design of cities and the culture around parenting that's creating this world in which kids don't have the option of kind of creating their own fun, going outside and just running around with a pack of kids. So... We were all kids, obviously, and we grew up in somewhat different places. And we also have kids right now ranging from the age of... My youngest is six. And my only is 17. And my guys are 12 and 14. So pretty decent range of kids. We've been through it. So what do we think of this assessment of Alexandra? Is that essentially there is a connection between car-oriented cities and less independent children? Oh, I mean, for sure. My daughter is going to be starting middle school in a couple of years, and she's nine years old right now. Absolutely at the age and mature enough uh, in her judgment to walk around. I'm not ever worried about stranger danger or anything like that. I'm worried about her getting hit by a car. And and so it it limits 
the places I will let her go. And it influences the times where I feel like I have to go with her to those things. Yeah. I I mean, I guess I have a slightly different perspective because I grew up in Manhattan in New York City. And I always thought that kids in the suburbs had a terrible deal, that we kids in the city had much, much, much better way of growing up. We could just walk out the door. Our friends were really close usually, or we could get to them really easily on our own. We never had to depend on our parents for anything. We could go wherever we wanted and everywhere we went, there was something interesting to look at, something interesting to do, some interesting trouble to get into. And I think that's still true. And this is the question that's foremost for Alexandra in her book is how do we create cities that enable more autonomy for kids? And she and I actually met and talked inside of this great new park in New York City called Brooklyn Bridge Park. It's got all these fantastic facilities and playgrounds, but getting to the park, you have to cross these pretty treacherous expressway ramps and many lanes of traffic. And a lot of parents simply don't let their kids walk there on their own. I mean, obviously I'm not suggesting that, you know, in New York City, five-year-olds should go to the park on their own, but, you know, 10-year-olds, tweens, teenagers should be able to go to parks on their own. And that is a really important developmental stage for them to be able to choose what they want to do, go do it, meet their own friends. And in some ways, like Brooklyn Bridge Park is an amazing park. It's kind of top of the line equipment, etc. But the best park for kids is one that they can access easily on their own, that can become their place. And it's not just here that the streets make it really difficult for kids to have that kind of independence. And it's not an irrational fear on parents' parks to not want them to go around on their own if they have to cross a lot of streets. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about how stranger danger and fear of kidnapping is completely irrational and not backed up by facts. But um, kids being threatened by cars is backed up by facts. Um, and bigger cars, faster moving traffic, all of that has only you know, increased the danger to kids. So what Alexander was saying is absolutely correct. You know, I, I'm not at all afraid of stranger danger. And I, I've taught my daughter what to do if someone approaches her and, you know, is uncomfortable in some way. And, I, you know, she knows to get out of there or ask for help. But there's this feeling of helplessness when it comes to her crossing the street by herself. And it's not unwarranted. I mean, motor vehicle crashes are something like 20%. It's like it's the leading cause of death for children in the United States after, uh, sadly, gun deaths and cancer. Um, And it's entirely preventable. So uh, I am terrified of that when I think of her walking to places like just the park two blocks from our apartment. When they get older, you have to let them take those chances and it's terrifying, but I feel like parents can't win. Either you're a helicopter parent who's spending too much time worrying about what is happening to your child and controlling it too much, or you're being irresponsible because you're letting them ride a bike in traffic. Well, how how can you be a responsible parent in this design situation? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in a way, it it's like a car-oriented city leads to more helicopter parenting. You know, this phenomenon that we're often very critical of parents. Oh, you're a helicopter parent. You're too anxious. You're too, you're not letting your child have enough independence and autonomy. And we present that often as this critique of the individual parent. And I think what Alexandra is doing is she's reorienting this so that we see this as a flaw in like the design of our cities. You know, I was thinking about this in terms of my own uh, childhood. So I used to bike to junior high school. So, you know, I wasn't five, I wasn't eight, but I would bike to junior high school, probably a distance of about a mile and a half, two miles. 
and I would do it, and it was mostly safe. Now when I go back to my hometown, that route has been so developed with subdivisions and cul-de-sacs and new arterial roads that the same kid my age, junior high school, would have to cross so many busy streets that no parent in their right mind would allow their kid of any age to do it. And many adults would probably feel unsafe doing it. And so that brought to mind, there's this very kind of famous graphic. Uh, It's from England, and it shows four generations of the same family and sort of their walk range and how far they would roam from one generation to the next. And it starts in 1919, and it shows the great-grandfather would go about six miles to go down to the fishing hole, and then you get to the grandfather in 1950. He can go about one mile and walk through the woods. You get to the mom or the dad, and in around the late 1970s, they could walk a mile away to the, the local swimming pool. But then you get to the son, to the present day, and he's only allowed to walk to the end of his street about 300 yards, and that's it. And that's all because of the design of cities, of cars that are just flooding every street. So, right, so we want kids to have independence. We want them to have autonomy, but the anxiety around this is real. And, you know, one of the examples is this whole subgenre of news stories that pop up like seemingly every other week of, you know, the mom who was arrested for letting her kids walk to the playground by themselves or for leaving her kids in the car for, you know, five minutes out in the parking lot. Um, There's a movement that's grown up in response to this called the free range kids movement that is really sort of advocating for kids to have more autonomy in the city. And so Alexandra and I talked about that a little bit. In a macro sense, I am completely down with the free range kids movement. I think there's a lot of overlap between what that movement is advocating for and what I'm talking about in my book, which is that children should be allowed more autonomy and it's really important for their development. But I also think that there are physical changes that have to happen in the city to make that easier for all parents. Because now, you know, kind of being a free range parent is a choice, almost like a consumer choice. And so it puts all of that on the parent. And what I really think has to happen is a change in like the physical structure of our cities that will help accelerate a cultural change towards giving children back a piece of the city and then giving them back more rights to the city. And that will, in fact, allow more freedom for parents. So we should stop for a moment and acknowledge that, you know, some of this comes from a place of privilege, right, where three white people with white children and the whole idea of free range of movement Uh, That equation changes depending on the color of your skin, right? The most famous and tragic example being Tamir Rice, who is killed just playing in a park, doing something that had he been white, no cop or adult or anybody would have given a second thought to. But because he was playing with a toy gun, cops came around and, and murdered him. And so the equation of freedom that black parents may have to deal with and consider is very different from what we have to consider. Absolutely. So this question of what to do with kids in the city, it's a hundred year old problem. And at the start of the 20th century, the streets of the American city were in many ways the domain of kids. Kids had a right to the city. They roamed and they had freedom and they were out in the streets with lots of other activities. And then something changed. You know, if you look back at stories about New York City and other big American cities from the late 19th century, kids were running around and playing in the streets and the streets were much more mixed use. You know, there were kids, there were horses, there were carts, there were all these things. And so kids could in fact play fairly safely in the streets because everything was pretty slow moving and nothing was that big. 
When we start to get the automobile coming in in the early 20th century, the streets become more dangerous. And there are statistics about kids dying in the streets in New York City from being hit by a car, you know, in 1903. And that's when the child saving movement moves in, which was a progressive movement. And they say, okay, we need to get the children off the streets. We need to make playgrounds for them. It's ironic that it was in an effort to save children from cars that we actually ended up turning over the streets to cars completely. Yeah. Unintended consequences of well-meaning progressive reform. Yep. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners have read or have heard of Peter Norton's book, Fighting Traffic, and he has some of these kind of astounding facts about just what happened when cars took over the streets. So in the city of Philadelphia, you get to 1928, and the stats are mind-boggling. 2,000 kids, more than 2,000 kids between the ages of four and eight were hit by cars in just one year. It's, it's like a number that is very hard to comprehend right. in a city of that size especially. And with many fewer cars at that time, too. And many fewer cars, It's just like yes. this brand new technology emerges on the streets and just starts mowing down children. Right. And so you can see how that unintended consequence comes up. Of right. Just like, we've got to save these children, get them off the streets get them off quickly, the street. get them into basically playpens, essentially, and let them play there. Right. The first playgrounds were sand gardens, which were basically an empty lot filled with sand. Um, which is kind of amazing. I feel like if you made something like that today, you know, people would label it an artwork, but the kids would actually go nuts for it. Um, but a few years later, they started creating equipment and organized activities on flat playgrounds. And Seward Park in, on the Lower East Side was the first New York City playground, which opened in 1903. And so these spaces were meant to be safe for children, but it was also the beginning of children being kind of taken out of the mainstream flow of the city and kind of put in their own childhood ghetto. Well, I, I think what's so ironic is like, you know, my father grew up in the Bronx and he, he tells me that they used to play stickball and there weren't as many cars. But it's so interesting to me always when you go to, say, a community board meeting that many of the people who probably are most nostalgic for the days of playing stickball in the streets of Brooklyn are now uh, most against changing those streets so that kids could play stickball in the streets of Brooklyn. And it really is interesting how that uh, mindset has shifted over just a couple of generations. Right. And I feel like when we were kids and we were allowed to just sort of play on the street and we weren't schlepped around to activities that were pre-planned and programmed for us, um, you know, we sort of had to like figure it out for ourselves. We had to like negotiate a game of touch football for ourselves and there would be fights and bruises and scrapes and stuff would happen. But, you know, there's probably a lot of value in just kids out there on the street just figuring it out. Okay, so a lot of what we're talking about, about how streets and cities are dangerous for kids because of cars, is one of the reasons. It's obviously very complicated, but it's one of the reasons why suburbs are so attractive to young families. And, you know, I see this with my own friends through my kids' school. When my daughter got to kindergarten and first grade, that's when the kind of first wave of people started just decamping for New Jersey or Westchester or other suburbs where they could have a yard, where they had space, they had an extra bedroom, um, and their kids had more freedom, at least in a private property sense, to roam and play. So it's like the idea that you need to go to the suburbs so that your kids have space or their own room or all that kind of stuff. You know, I always say that I don't think kids actually need a whole lot of space. They need other kids. We go to the playground 
And I can guarantee you that my kids will bump into someone they know and just start playing with them. And even if they don't know a kid from school, they're just at that age where they can play with anybody. So we don't actually ever really schedule play dates. We just go to the park. And And it's harder for that to happen when you live in the suburbs and you're playing by yourself in your backyard. There's also a huge benefit to parents in that for me to schedule play dates with children, I have to like that kid to have them come over to my house and watch them or or bring them somewhere to play with them. And so I also have to kind of like the parents. And yeah. so when we go to the playground, I don't have to worry about that. The kids just run off by themselves. And so my and they kids, can play with terrible people. They can play with awful with kids and I just don't care. Right. So the question is, are there cities out there that did it differently, that did it better, that designed themselves and planned themselves better for families and for kids? Well, the most interesting one that I found in North America was Vancouver. (laughs) Um, Yes, I was told by my editor not to throw in too many European examples because, you know, it's like we can't talk about Copenhagen all the time, right? (laughs) Right. So, but Vancouver in the 1970s created a new zoning code that was intended to keep more families in the city. I mean, now, you know, you read all these articles and they're like, millennials want to stay in the city after they have kids. But in fact, Vancouver saw 45 years ago that more families wanted to stay in the city because parents wanted shorter commuting times. And um, for the stay-at-home parent, it meant a much more sociable and easier life. So they put in these zoning guidelines that meant that buildings had to have more two, three, and four bedroom apartments. It meant that buildings were supposed to have a shared outdoor space that was kind of between public and private, like a courtyard. Um, And the streets were also designed with buffers between the sidewalk and traffic, with trees and a variety of other things. And, you know, I went there and looked at some of those 1970s developments and I read through their guidelines. And it's like, why can't we talk about planning this way now? You know, everything becomes so abstract, but they're really just talking about like how to make you not go crazy when you have a small child. Yeah, I can totally relate to that as a work from home parent. And, you know, one of the things I liked about being a work from home parent in New York City was that I could walk out to a park with my kid really quickly and not be really isolated. I mean, I think that that these structures isolate parents, especially women. And if we thought about the city from the perspective of the parent of a small child and from the child, him or herself, then we would be designing much more humane spaces where people could move around and, and interact with each other in a much more holistic and healthy way. Right. I mean, the thing that blew me away about the Vancouver piece, aside from their zoning regulations are amazing. They're literally in the form of a graphic novel. So anyone can understand the zoning regulations. They're not this crazy legalese. Also, just like, can you imagine your city telling real estate developers, if you want to build buildings here, you have to build this entire neighborhood so that it's good for families. And if you if you don't agree to that, you're gone. Forget you. You don't get to build here. I well, mean, that's that's what they were doing. And I think the other part of that is that if, if you did that today and you built a building with three or four bedroom condominiums with a courtyard and lovely trees, it would be too expensive for most people to afford. And so cities would also have to mandate some sort of affordability so that young families, people who are not uh, working on Wall Street or you know six-figure earning attorneys could afford to stay. That's a big part of it too. I mean, this is a big shift in perspective. We're talking about like imagining planning from the perspective of a child, really, right? 
So Alexandra mentioned this initiative from the Bernard Van Leer Foundation called Urban 95. 95 centimeters is the height of a three-year-old child. And what Urban 95 is doing is they're asking this simple question, what if you designed a city from the perspective of a 95 centimeter tall human being, a three-year-old? You know, can they see the car coming down the street? If they can't, then you need a curb bump out. Can they make it across the street with their little legs in the time of the walk signal? No, then you need a longer walk signal. Like all of these things kind of slowing yourself down and shrinking yourself down to the perspective of the child allows planners to get a different perspective on what's really safe and what's really working in the city. But it's really not just about kids. It's about old people. It's about people with disabilities. It's about people with injuries, just all of these people that are not a standard size able-bodied person and none of us are at all times um, trying to get around the city and finding that there's basically no wiggle room you know like no room for error i mean i love that that's just so cool yeah i mean i i think that informs my bicycle advocacy to be sure in that a lot of times i will ask planners with the city when they put up a painted bike lane or something like that um I get that you understand there's a need for a bike lane on this street, but the question is, who are you imagining will use this? Because it's certainly not my kids. My kids are not going to be riding in a door zone painted bike lane on a truck route. They need a protected bicycle lane. My son is six years old and he's a little little for his age and my kids only come up to bumper height. I don't want them sharing streets with trucks. So so this kind of takes us back to where we started, which is when somebody says to you, oh, you know, you're about the war on cars? Well, I can't be about that because I have kids. It seems like this is a way of framing the answer to be exactly the opposite, which is this is why cars are horrible is because of these little 95 centimeter beings. You know, we tend to think of parenting as this realm of like private, individual family choice. But the way we raise our kids obviously determines a lot about the future of the society that we're all going to live in together. And the way we design our cities determines a lot about how we raise our kids. Yeah, I mean, I think back to the kids we heard at the beginning of the episode and how much empathy there was in when they were talking about the wheelchair users. And that is the kind of empathy that we need for a civilization that's going to survive the crises that we're undergoing right now. And you're not going to build those kinds of citizens if you try to raise your children in these metal bubbles that move around and where they aren't able to even see other people in order to build empathy with them. Right. But I think also, you know, when that person says to you, I have a family, I have kids and I need to drive them places. I don't think you really gain anything by arguing with them individually. Like I can't argue with you. Your kid has right. soccer practice on the other side of the city at 7 a.m. Yeah, on a Saturday. You got to have empathy with that person Right, too, like right? I have empathy for that. But so my, my fight these days is with the planners, is with the city and saying like, you know, I want to live a life where my kid can just go two or three blocks to the park by himself, by herself and not get hit by a car. And I want you to stop thinking about how fast the cars need to make it through that intersection or how many cars you need to process through that highway off-ramp. And I want you to think about the kids who should be able to have that autonomy to walk to the park themselves. So Doug is, of course, always the sane and rational one and where I would be like jumping up and down and arguing with somebody. Doug is advocating for policy changes, which makes sense. And actually, this has been bubbling up 
in the policy realm. Like even back in 2006, when Mayor Bloomberg in New York put out Plan YC, having playgrounds and parks within close proximity to every New Yorker was a part of that very explicit plan. And then de Blasio, of course, had his universal pre-K program, essentially making it free for parents to send their kids to preschool. And these are all things that can hopefully keep families in the city so that it's easier for them to get to and from work and then just be home with their children, too. The summary here is like planning a city for kids is is good for everybody. Well, I think like Alexander said, is that when you plan the city from the perspective of kids, then it works for everybody, people with disabilities, senior citizens, everybody in between of all different ages and abilities. And to do that planning, I think we actually have to listen to kids, which is something I don't think we do enough. So I think kind of one funny way to look at it is when you go to a community meeting, what do people do when they stand up to talk? They will say, I've lived in this neighborhood for 30, 40, 50 years, and I don't want this thing. And sometimes I look at my daughter and, you know, I think like she should stand up and say, I'm going to live in this neighborhood for 30, 40, 50 years. And I want these things because they're going to make my life better over that time period. Yeah. So maybe it's time to hand the war on cars over to the next generation. Well, because who can resist adorable children making their case for a better city? Okay, so here we go. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of The War on Cars. Don't forget to visit our website, thewaroncars.org. Remember, the first 20 people who become Patreon subscribers or up their contribution level will receive a bonus hashtag Cars sticker. Help people find us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to our big supporters, Charlie G. of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the Law Office of Vaccaro and White in New York City, Huck and Elizabeth Finney, and the very generous Lee H. Herman Jr. Thanks, Lee. We want to hear from you. Record a voice memo and email it to us at thewaroncars at gmail.com. We're planning on putting together a listener mail episode. Reactions, ideas, complaints, let's hear it. This episode of The War on Cars was produced by Matt Cutler and recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. Our theme music is by me, Nathaniel Goodyear. Thanks to Alexandra Lang for taking the time to talk to us. You should buy Alexandra's book, The Design of Childhood. And special thanks also to my classmates at PS118 and all of the other kids who took time to speak with us. I'm Golly Gordon. I'm Marlo Napperstack. I'm Saul Napperstack. I'm Nathaniel Goodyear. And I'm Zeb Gordon, and this is The War on Cars. That's a lot of talking. <laughs> it is a lot of talking. Did I interview you? It, yeah, you're the kid president. Yeah. What are you doing? Remind me what you're doing as kid president. Make fun stuff and to give out free candy and to make the places funner. What, how would you make them funner? From making like off-the-courses for the kids and fun toy shops and comic book shops and a lot of cool book libraries and movies. Make it cool. Got it. Tell me your name and how old you are. Oliver, five and a half.
Thanks again. <laughs>